Hi, everyone. Welcome to Humane Voices, the official podcast of the Humane Society of the United States. Carrie and Austin here on another episode talking about how we're working to help animals in need where regular care is not necessarily available or affordable. So uh, we're joined today by a very special guest, Wendy Wojak, Senior Director of the Rural Area Veterinary Services, RAVS. Thanks again for sitting down to chat with us today, Wendy. We're really, really glad that you're here. I'm excited to talk about the program. We're excited to have you, and we're, we're really saying that like we mean it this time. <laughs> She, she is very, very special guest. Yes, Carrie. I just want to uh, note before we get into this, you know, like the, for, for those of you who have noticed like how excellent a radio voice Austin has, like just when, just so you know, when he's not on speaker, he sounds like a tiny squeaky, like it's, it's sort of like the smell of helium. Um, this is just a voice he puts on just for this podcast. Just so you know so that much- it's a little insight into our, our technique here. That's only for the bonus content. That's here. right. You, yeah. I oh, turn yeah. off all oh, the modulation. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but okay, so we digress. Uh, Wendy, let's start with the basics here. Can you tell us what is RAVS? Sure. So RAVS is, uh, as you mentioned, the Rural Area Veterinary Services Program. And our goal is to expand access to veterinary care in underserved uh, rural communities where um, Regular veterinary care tends to be either very limited or non-existent in many cases, um, generally both due to both poverty and um, geographic isolation. And so for many of our communities, uh, poverty is a big issue and and affordability of care is an issue, but also there may not be a veterinary clinic for an hour's drive away um, due to the rural nature and the, the small communities that we work in. I remember experiencing this when I went out. Um, I, I, I can't remember when, Wendy, please tell me if I, I think um, Ravs probably does some work out in, in this area, but I remember years ago when I went out to Arizona and we were doing some work in Havasu Canyon. And at some point, you know, out in the West, like I think us East Coasters sort of forget like what distances in the West are really like. I mean, the sort of isolation is really astounding at times. It reminded me of, um, uh, actually it reminded me of driving through Central Australia where you would see signs that are like, you know, next services, 250 miles, right? It's, it's like the sort of, you know, distances between places just like they're an entirely other way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, it's very, um, most of our work right now is on Native American reservations throughout the Western US. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we work throughout Arizona and Washington and the Dakotas. Um, and, you know, you can drive, you can drive for hours and hours without running into another human or, uh, or another town. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're reaching out to these uh, different individuals in the reservations, how do you work to schedule those? I'm sure that the relationship between uh, the, you know, you and, and the different communities are, are very important for your work. Yeah, so right now we work with about a dozen um, Native nations and uh, at each of those locations, we have very long-standing relationships. Um, in most of these communities, we have worked uh, with the community for sometimes a decade or more. Mm. Um, and our partners, we have tribal partners at every community uh, who collaborate with us on every clinic. To um, The community coordinates our facilities and uh, sleeping space for our volunteers and meals for our volunteers. They do all of the local outreach and advertising um, and sort of help facilitate our logistics on the ground. 
And um, we really work together with them throughout the year to schedule the clinic, um, make sure that we uh, can accommodate the families who need us the most mm -hmm. and really um, meet the needs that they see as most pressing in the community. Mm -hmm. So um, those relationships are, are really important and, and the work can't really happen without that. Yeah, Wendy, I'm really curious about that. Like that's something that's really, it's, so how long have you been with the program now? Long time. Uh, <laughs> eight, eight, eight. I, I like to tell people I've been here since the dawn of history, since around Stonehenge. So yeah, yeah. about yeah. seventeen years. Seventeen now. years. Okay. Yeah. So so you would have been around like when we first started establishing some of these relationships with these communities. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about is like. I, you know, and part of the reason I'm thinking about this, because we've talked a lot, and I think we've had on the program before, um, our team from the Pets for Life team. And mm -hmm. there are some really interesting sort of overlaps, I think, even though like yeah. largely Pets for Life works in urban areas, and y'all are like the exact opposite. You're out in the, you know, the far wild yonders. And so, but one of the things I was really curious about, like when you're talking about um, how long we've been in these particular communities, what strikes me, um, and please tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, is... With, with when you're working with native nations, I would think that there's just like sort of a history of, of kind of people not showing up and, and kind of um, a sense of betrayal at times that would make sort of becoming a trusted figure and being a really sort of consistent presence really critical to the work. Yeah, you know, I think it's true uh, in any community, any, mm -hmm. particularly any um, underserved community. Uh, yeah. The communities that we work in, and we've throughout RAB's history have worked um, in, in all sorts of rural communities. And the issues in many cases are, are very much the same mm -hmm. around systemic poverty, um, you know, rooted in uh, historical oppression yeah. um, and, uh, and policies mm -hmm. that have created the, the need that exists in many of the communities. And, um, and those issues are going to take, uh, they're not quick. We're not mm, going to solve them right. with a couple of visits to a community and a couple of spay neuter, you know, clinics here and there. Um, they took generations to create and they're going to take a long time and a lot of work and um, relationship building to, um, to solve. And yeah. so when we commit, when we start working with the community, we really commit to being there for the long haul. Um, and mm, clearly, if you've over, been to some of them for over a decade, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, you know, and really commit to working with them through, you know, the years and years it's going to take to eventually have more sustainable um, local services year-round mm -hmm. versus periodic visits. So what does a, can you give us a view of what an actual clinic looks like? What are the, what do the days look like? What is the staff made up of? Yeah, and uh, what are all the services you guys are providing yeah. in these cases? Yeah, yeah. Our clinics are, um, if I do say, they're kind of a big deal. Mm. Um, we're, we're not a small operation. Um, so one of the important things about our program is that in addition to providing direct care, we are a, te a field teaching program. Um, and so equally important to us in provi is providing care now that addresses um, immediate suffering and the needs that animals in these communities have, um, but also looking forward to engaging veterinary students and mm. veterinary professionals in creating the solutions that are really, that we need moving That's forward. Great. Yeah. Um, and in order to do that, uh, you know, the veterinary professionals and students need to have both skills, uh, the clinical skills to provide care in, um, 
let's say resource limited situations uh, and sort of the inspiration to do so. So um, that fact that we're a teaching clinic impacts how our clinics operate and what our teams look like. And our teams are, are somewhere around 40 or 45 people. Mm. Um, we're, we're a big crew um, because often uh, 25 or 30 of those are veterinary and veterinary technician students. And then the, uh, there's another 15 or so uh, staff and professional volunteers. So we get uh, volunteer veterinarians and technicians from all over the country. Oh, that's great. Um, who give up their vacation time at home mm-hmm. to come out in the field with us. They pay all their own travel expenses wow. uh, and then come work harder uh, for a week or two than they would at home for no money. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so we all gather in the sort of the closest big city. Um, <laughs> Which can that, be like 150 people, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but because our teams come from all over the country. So, you know, we sort of get together, we caravan out to where we're going to work. Um, we set up in uh, whatever facility the community can provide us. So mm-hmm. often that's a high school gym or a community center, uh, abandoned church, um, you know, all kinds of, of, of facilities. Um, and then we, we set up a MASH style clinic. So all of our equipment and supplies is hauled in one modified horse trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we set up and um, we'll usually work for a week or two at a time at a, in one um, location. We might move once or twice in a week. Um, and every clinic is a new team. So we have to sort of train from the ground up a whole mm. new team of volunteers each time. And within 24 hours, we have a fully functioning uh, field teaching hospital. Wow, that's incredible. And the services you're providing, is it just vaccinations or? No, we're really a full scale clinic. So uh, we do a lot of vaccinations and wellness care and parasite control and sort of those basic Mm. treatments. But we also do uh, spay neuter and a lot of welfare surgeries, um, you know, things to alleviate uh, suffering or old traumas in animals, a lot of medicine and wellness and infectious disease treatment. Mm. We'll pretty much see any animal um, that comes in, and so it's mm-hmm. it's always a surprise. We never know. All of our clinics are um, first come, first serve. So folks line up. We never know what we're going to see or how many are going to be there, and we are able to provide essentially any service we can. Um, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So that, just yeah. to just to add curiosity, like when you're when you say you never know what's going to turn up, can you give us a couple of like examples of like surprising things you've seen over the years? Uh, we've seen pretty much everything, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, in every species. We focus on dogs or cats, but um, we've treated goats and guinea pigs and lizards and wow. pigeons and you know, sort of anything that someone, any animal someone might be caring for. Uh, will a, a goose? I remember a goose one time. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh, and goose are so goose geese are so friendly too. How, yeah, how was, was that? Was a very polite patient. Oh. Uh, uh-huh, I'm sure. Wow. Well, Grey's Anatomy. Step aside. This is the show that we goose need anatomy. to watch. Goose Anatomy. Exactly. But for pets, yeah, that is that's absolutely wonderful. And it's, I mean, talk about the the stories of different things. And because you live in such a or you're working in such a remote area, and we and we can get. Some of these photos of, of Rav's clinic on, on our YouTube channel once that goes live too. But since they're so remote, Wendy, and you, you haul all of the equipment in the trailer, do you always have the equipment that you need if you don't know what you're seeing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, well, you know, over the years, we've gotten quite adept at, uh, at our inventory management. It's quite a logistics operation. 
but it's always a surprise. And one of the real hallmarks of field work is um, ingenuity. Uh, it's not uncommon. In most of the facilities we work, we have running water and electricity. Um, but sometimes it doesn't always work reliably and you're in the middle of a surgery day and the power goes out and there's, you know, students standing on chairs behind surgery tables with headlamps um, so that we can finish wow. the day. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we get creative pretty much on a daily basis. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of the things we share with our clients is that folks who live every day mm -hmm. in situations in which resources aren't available mm -hmm. are very good at getting creative to find the care their animals um, mm -hmm. and you know whether it's how they get the animals to the clinic or what they do to set up to provide nursing care after the clinic um, our students get a chance really to learn a lot about creativity and, and uh, ingenuity and care from mm -hmm. our clients actually. Wow I imagine you know so I know you said that you get folks from all over the country, but I mean, do have, have they, most of the people who are coming to work with you, have they been in situations like this before? Is this, is this, are the sort of circumstances that folks are living and working in like a surprise to them? Like how do they experience it for the first time? Yeah. It, you know, it's really variable. Um, a lot of our volunteers uh, are returners, you know, so mm -hmm. they, they get hooked and they yeah. come back to this every year and, and they have friends in the community now that they, uh, that they see every year. But for a lot of our students and volunteers, this really is their first time um, interacting and working close in in a community that is dealing with this level of poverty mm -hmm. day to day. Um, yeah. And it really is a level of poverty that um, is large scale and deep enough that most folks, I think, don't even um, don't imagine exists in our country. Um, families who live in the middle of the Dakotas in the middle of winter without reliable heat, mm. uh, without running water, without reliable power, um, you know, things that we often take for granted. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's often a, a little bit of a wake up call. Um, mm. And, you know, part of the experience is, um, is that wake up call of saying, mm. you know, there's a need out there uh, and that our volunteers are going to have a lot of power in the veterinary profession and the animal welfare world as they move into their careers. And mm. they're, the, they're the ones who uh, can help create a different story. Right, it seems like they would become really great sort of change advocates. I mean, do you see that happening with the people who have made this trip, like in terms of how it influences their careers and what they do next? Definitely, sometimes it's a, it's a like dramatic light bulb moment. Mm. Um, I, I get chills sometimes when I think about, you know, sitting late at night with a student, you know, halfway through a week or two of clinics and there's this light in their eyes and they say, I didn't know this existed as a thing I could do with my career. Mm -hmm. I found my calling. Um, you know, and not everyone is this dramatic altering moment, but occasionally there are. And uh, all of my staff right now, all of my veterinary staff started with us as students. Um, mm. And Well, that's great. That's so great. It must be like a long time. family you've developed over time. It really is. Yeah. It really is. And because I have uh, friends, I'm sure we all uh, do, that are thinking about veterinary school or are in veterinary school. So if they're watching this episode, how does it usually work when they're in the program? Is it kind of like a mentorship process where they shadow the veterinary professionals and go through what they do? And, and like you said, maybe work their way up to uh, full time as, as a RAVS veterinary professional? Or how does, how does the mentorship uh, work? Yeah. So... Um, generally, so we, we uh, post a, a new clinic schedule every year, and every year we see 
about 200 veterinary and veterinary technician students come through the program. Um, some of those are returning students that we've seen before, um, you know, about three quarters of them are new each year. Um, and students generally apply in, for uh, a week or two of clinics at a time. And um, in the field, it's a, it's a pretty intensive program. There's a, a fair bit of pre-preparation that students are, need to do before they show up at the clinic. Um, there's a lot of training and orientations on site. Um, and then throughout the clinic, they work one-on-one -on -one, uh, with experienced mentors, uh, veterinarians and technicians who have been doing this work. Um, and they work in every area of the clinic. So mm. they really get intensive hands-on experience in um, medicine, uh, client communication, anesthesia, surgery, recovery, um, uh, 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 many, it's, it has often been called veterinary boot camp. Um, <laughs> and students, it's not uncommon for students to leave at the end and say, I learned more in two weeks than I have in three years of vet school. Yeah, um, yeah I was going to ask about that. Like, I imagine that some of the things that you might see out in, in some of these places in terms of the things that the animals might either, either in terms of illnesses or, or injuries, or even, you know, like wildlife encounters, they, they might see things that they would not see in their standard sort of suburban private practice. I mean, like, what are some examples of those? Yeah, definitely. You know, particularly in communities where veterinary care is not available, mm. um, you often see uh, conditions that you don't see in particularly in the tertiary care, you know, veterinary school hospitals. Mm. Um, we see a lot of parvovirus, distemper virus, um, tick-borne diseases, um, uh, a lot of injuries and, and trauma. Um, <laughs> porcupine incidents uh, are very common in some of our communities where you know, dogs have run in with yeah. a porcupine and end up with a face full of quills, oh. which kind of looks silly. We've, I'm sure we have some photos that we can share that, you know, they, they kind of look funny with their face all full of pointy spines, mm -hmm. but um, without hurts, care, yeah. yeah, without care, you know, they can't eat and it actually becomes mm. a life-threatening thing. And oh so, my God, right. um, uh, so our students really get a lot of exposure to things that they might not see otherwise, um, or they've only read about in a textbook. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they get really hands-on knowledge that will carry them. I've had students, uh, alumni, who contact me years later when they're in practice somewhere and they see something that they saw as a student and they'll call me and say, oh, I knew what, I was the only person in my practice who knew what to do <laughs> because of this clinic I did eight years ago. Wow, that's great. Way to put theory to practice, absolutely. <laughs> so, Wendy, how has COVID affected the work? Uh, when was the last time that you all had a clinic? Yeah, um, it's been a strange year for sure, as mm -hmm. for everyone. Um, and uh, we were sort of just about to head out into our summer clinics season uh, last year when all of the community lockdowns and, and travel restrictions and things hit and so um, we had to shift last spring pretty quickly from being ready, you know, I literally had a team ready to leave that weekend for a clinic and we had to pull them all back. Um, and uh, to shifting to sort of emergency response mode um, and, and really adapting to help our communities meet needs remotely. So we spent a, we've spent a lot of time this last year um, getting donated pet food and animal care supplies uh, distributed um, hundreds of thousands of pounds of food and supplies out and put together a training program 
for the local animal control and public health folks to be able to provide some basic vaccination services and things um, and training them remotely to do that. Um, and then facilitating some care uh, via various grants and things. Um, so it's been a different, a different approach for us, but it's also been an interesting opportunity to um, do a little bit more community support work and develop some local logistics that I think um, once we get back in the field, which we're all very anxious to do, um, uh, we'll really have some, some new foundations to work from locally as well, which is exciting. So if I'm not a vet student, you had a lot of great resources or a veterinary professional, how can I still help or get involved if I still wanted to volunteer or uh, otherwise? Yeah, so um, all of RAV's programs are entirely donor funded. So um, we're always, you know, we're always looking for supporters who want to, to um, contribute to the, to the work in that way. Um, and then volunteering is always an option, even um, for folks who aren't veterinary professionals. On each of our clinics, we have um, a couple of lay volunteers who are just folks who want to work hard um, and come out and support the cause and help with various aspects of the clinic and in, um, intake and, uh, and, and sort of keep the clinic flowing. And it's an amazing experience for folks who are really interested in animal care and, and um, expanding access in these communities. Mm. And we're fun. Fantastic. <laughs> We have fun yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. So, Wendy, one of the things I'm curious about is like when you're out working in these rural communities that, that are so far away from everything, I'm assuming that all of you guys are staying in like the swankiest hotel around, right? Oh, it's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, this is not, this is far from a cushy gig. Um, <laughs> and it's one of the things that we really uh, make clear to our volunteers before they, they come. Um, we work very long days, 14, 15 hours a day. Um, sun up to way past dark, very often don't even get to see the town, um, mm. uh, in all kinds of conditions, outside, inside, heat, bugs, mm. uh, snow, um, and uh, our volunteers all camp out, either in tents, wow. Um, wow. sometimes on the floor of the clinic building, um, occasionally in dorms, school dorms, which are very luxurious with real beds of a sort. Mm. Um, if we have a shower, it's like four-star accommodations. Amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I remember last time I went out in the field and out in the West, I slept on the floor of a closet with six cowboys outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was great. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it is, it's not a cushy gig, but we try to, um, you know, it's important to us to be able to put resources where it matters most. And so, um, you know, a sleeping bag in the corner of the gym is, cozy as anything. Yeah, totally. How do the, how do the sort of students react to sort of their experiences during the week? I mean, like, you know, it must be, you know, exhausting. Yeah. You know, the experience for everyone is, is, um, uh, it's intense. We're, you know, we're working very hard. It's mm -hmm. challenging. It's physically challenging, um, and mentally and emotionally, yeah. um, challenging. You're going to see a lot of, um, suffering mm -hmm. and a lot of joy, a lot of amazing bonds, um, it's kind of a roller coaster, really, mm -hmm. and many of our volunteers get hooked on it um, because there is something really amazing about just being able to provide whatever care you can with what's available without having to worry about whether the person can pay for it. Mm -hmm. um, just knowing that we can do the best possible for each animal that comes in, um, and really the teamwork is is a thing that many folks find a little bit addictive. Um, mm. We have these amazing uh, 
ability to pull together a team of folks who three days ago didn't know each other um, and now uh, can work in, in ways that get amazing things done. Mm. And so I think that experience is both um, super rewarding, super challenging. Um, all of us who've been in the field for a couple of weeks at some point say, why am I doing this again? My body hurts, I'm tired. Um, and then, you know, and then the next day we wake up and say, oh my God, let's do this again. Uh, so <laughs> it takes, it takes a little bit of a special person to, to mm. love this work. And what a bond and family you create after this experience. Yeah. The relationships very often last a lifetime, you know, mm. the, the mentorship relationships and the volunteer relationships, and even, um, those with clients and community members, uh, yeah, totally. We see once a year. That's great. Wonderful. All right. Wendy Wojak, Senior Director of the Rural Area Veterinary Services, or RAVS, program here at the Humane Society of the United States. That's all we have for today's show. To find out more how we're working with communities to help animals in need where regular care might not be available or affordable, head to humanesociety.org for more info. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Humane Voices. Humane Voices.